0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting
1: people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Before we begin our show today, I wanted to ask you, Tim, do you ever feel like you get stuck? Stuck like, uh, like stuck in the mud, or like <laughs> I
0: spilled glue on the floor and I'm no, stuck to the no, floor. No. Not I mean, physically stuck, but more like mentally stuck. Like you're working on a problem and you just can't seem to figure it out, or you can't get that next sentence to flow in the email that you're writing. It's like, ah, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? Or, uh, or, or you're stuck in a job that you don't love but can't seem to leave, or maybe it's even a relationship that that kind of uh,
1: stuck, Mister am. Did you have to bring up the relationship stuck? <laughs> God, I'm let's just say that that's not the case now. <laughs> I just want to go on the record of saying I am not stuck. I am super happy with my dearly beloved right now. But yeah, I I get stuck all the time. You know, I i right now I'm working on a project at work where I'm trying to work on a dashboard. And I just totally maxed out. I could not go any further. I'd spend about a week of uh, every day spending about an hour just coming in to try to. Refine it and get it to the next level, and I I was really stuck on that. But fortunately, I was able to get unstuck with with one of the tips from from our guest today. (laughs) Yes.
0: Do you get stuck? Oh, I get stuck all the time. Me too. Right. Um. And as our guest says, getting stuck is inevitable. Um. But we can find our way out of being stuck, and that there are certain methods that we can use to help us get unstuck when it matters most. And isn't that the key? It's the getting unstuck part. Yes. Yes, that's the important
1: part. (laughs) So our guest today is Adam Alter. He's the professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business with an affiliate appointment in the psychology department. He's a super smart guy. He is the author of bestsellers, Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible. Adam Alter has spent the past two decades studying how people have become stuck and how they free themselves in order to thrive. We talked to him about the new book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough,
0: How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. This, for me, Tim, was one of my favorite interviews. I just love the energy and the insight that Adam brings, Mm. tied with the tips that we can all use to help us get unstuck, because we know we always get stuck. So the important part is to get unstuck. Unstuck.
1: And boy, his work came to me at an important time, because we will talk about that later. But-
0: We also got to talk a lot of music, which was, you know, it's pretty great for me. Just saying. (laughs) Anytime that you get to talk to a guest about music and just not a question about what two artists' catalogs are you going to bring, you like are in (laughs) in heaven. So there you go. Um, Uh, So, Groovers, we invite you to sit back in a comfy chair with your favorite unsticky drink and get stuck listening to our conversation with Dr. Adam Alter.
1: Adam Alter, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you here. And we're going to start with a speed round. So i got to know, coffee or
2: tea? Oh, coffee. It's sitting right next to me. It's oh. always sitting right next to me. <laughs> Perpetual <laughs> coffee, right? There you go. All right. Not too Bottomless bad. Bottomless coffee. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> okay. Since this is a speed round, we'll continue on. Uh, dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite actor? Now I have to think of who both of those is uh,
2: i'll go I'll go musician, I'll go musician okay that was that was quite considered uh, does uh, is does someone come to mind? No, and I think that's why I'm struggling, but I'd pick music over acting, yeah, okay All I right. just want to heartily
1: endorse that <laughs> <laughs> Of course you would Mr Hula, of and of course you would <laughs> okay, so is it a good idea or not a good idea to paint my rambunctious kid's room
2: bubblegum pink? It is a bad idea or only works for about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to live, live with bubblegum pink for the rest exactly. of your life.
0: Yeah, oh. well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Well, that goes back <laughs> to an older book that you did. So there you go. All That's right. So final speed round question. Is it better to think of creativity through an insight lens where we have an aha moment, or should it be viewed as a productivity lens where creativity is the outcome of hard work?
2: productivity oh. the thing you can control
0: look at that very very fast no hesitation Snap. at all on that answer Snap. and <laughs> explain well that's the last speed round question so now we can actually expand upon this a little bit so get let's let's talk about that a little bit what why is it more important to be thinking about Um, creativity through a productivity lens as opposed to that insight lens.
2: I think the role of a scientist, particularly a scientist who writes books, is to take what seems mystical and impossible to pin down and to turn it into something a little bit more tractable that people can understand and make sense of and sometimes even use and replicate. And the nice thing about these two lenses of creativity or through which you can view creativity is they, they differ in terms of how how much creativity seems like a kind of mystical thing that is either yours or it's not versus something that you can control. And so the, the insight lens that you mentioned assumes that you either are sort of born with insight and that some people are just more creative than others and insight just drops on you like like a bit of rain from the clouds. And and obviously that's there's something a little bit disempowering about that, I think, mm. especially if you don't feel like you're always always creative and even very creative people often don't feel they're creative all the time. So, so that's a little disempowering, I think. But the productivity lens says that actually on your best day, most of the variance in productivity comes from whether you've had a good amount of sleep, whether you're engaged with the task, whether you're enjoying the task. And so all of us, whether we're at, at an average at a six out of 10 on, product, on, on creativity, we could be a nine out of 10 on our best days. Mm. And so the productivity lens says basically work hard, do the right things, and you will be creative.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, Boy, there's so much to unpack there. We are talking about anatomy of a breakthrough. And maybe we should kind of start with what does the research say about maybe the counter side of the breakthrough, which is getting stuck? What did you uncover in your work?
2: Yeah. So I started maybe four or five years ago now asking questions about how many people are stuck and what sort of stuckness do they experience? And so I started running this big survey that now has thousands of responses from around the world asking you know, is there an area of your life in which you feel stuck? And I explained what that meant. And then how do you feel about it? And I just asked people to sort of pour their minds out onto this this uh, survey. And I found that it's universal. It's it's borderline universal. There are very few people who don't within 10 to 15 seconds say, oh yeah, I'm stuck. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you the area <laughs> where I feel that way. Yeah. And so so it's it's universal. It doesn't feel very good. And they often feel isolated. Although of course, everyone has a an area in their lives in his or her life where he, he or she feels a bit stuck. So it's um it's a it's an interesting psychological phenomenon.
0: You bring up goal gradient theory about this too, and this midpoint lull. We had Ayet Fishbach on the show and she talked about the problem of the middle and uh, you know, some of those different pieces. So what are some ways as you're thinking about that middle lull, that element within there? What what can we do about that? And is that something again that is universal from you, from what you've seen?
2: Yeah. So Ayelet's work is is fantastic. She's one of the the giants of the, the goal research world. I I think the most useful thing you can do with the middle is to remove it all together to eradicate it. <laughs> How <laughs> so no, do you boom, eradicate
0: the middle? <laughs> no, it's magic. It's gone. It's it,
2: there's, There is no middle. If you say there's no middle, it's it's the beginning, and then hey, we're at the end. All right. It's like, It's like what I want to do with with the winter time out in Connecticut. (laughs) And how's that working for you? It's working beautifully. It's, uh, you know, almost 20 years in, it turns out every year winter returns. There's not much I can do about it. So I I think what you want to do is you want to shrink it as much as possible. And so the best way to do that is to, um, it's called narrow bracketing. You take a big goal, say I'm trying to write a book that's 100,000 words long. There are lots of ways of thinking about that process. I think the most unhelpful is to wake up one morning and say, I'm at zero, I need to get to one hundred thousand, because the middle is colossal. There is a very big point between the first word and the one hundred thousand where you're you're stuck in the messy middle. But what you can do instead that's very useful is to say, I'm going to write in bursts of a hundred words or five hundred words or a thousand words or whatever it is that's important to you. And the way you do that, the way you artificially do that is you because you're bracketing at, say, a thousand words, you've got obviously a hundred of those. You maybe have a chart where you fill in, I've seen people do this, you fill in the squares, each square is a thousand words and you have to have something that marks the end of that particular sub goal. So Mm. you've got to, let's say you like coffee, you drink (laughs) some coffee, although you may be doing that all the time. Um, (laughs) We don't know anybody that does that. Come Um, on. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what you need to do. You need to mark it with some sort of reward that says, hey, you've just completed this, what I would describe as a sub goal. And it's a very effective way of removing the middle. It, it's in some ways, it seems so obvious, right? that mm-hmm. from all that we know
1: about goal-setting and goal striving, that uh, that these things really ought to be obvious to to link these rewards with small, you know small accomplishments. And
2: yet, why is it so hard for us to do that? Why is it so damn hard? Yeah. So there are always always two answers to the question, why don't we do the thing, whatever the thing is. In this case, the thing is shrinking the middle or pairing, pairing the end of the sub goal with a reward. One reason that I think is the most profound and that drives what I do is education. We don't always know what to do. Mm. Even if it seems obvious, it's often not. And there may be a really strong signal, but that signal is surrounded by a huge amount of noise. And so you hear maybe a hundred different things and people are saying, do this and do that. But there's usually an answer that, if you follow the science, will lead you to something that's, I think, quite fruitful. You just have to know what it is. So that's part of part of the job of the book, like the one I wrote, is to say, hey, here's the stuff that we know. It's not just anecdote; it's also backed by something a little bit firmer than that. The second thing, though, is humans. We almost always know what we're supposed to be doing. We're just <laughs> really bad bad at doing it. Like we we know what we're supposed to eat. We know how much we're supposed to move our bodies. We know how much we're supposed to work and how much we're supposed to sleep and how much we're supposed to save for a time. And I could go on and on. We don't do those things because the biggest struggle for humans is, is trading off the now for the future, is doing the right thing now for my future self. And when it comes to things like goal gradients and um, shrinking the goal and all of that, right now, do I want to f- fuss with that? I I, I just want to st- sort of get started and make it feel like I'm making some progress and I don't even want to have to deal with this this whole way of rethinking about the goal. I just want to do, I want mm-hmm. to get there. I want to feel like I'm making progress. And so, uh, you know, a big part of the book is, is a, a suggestion that we slow down. It's a prescription to to slow down, especially in the immediate term, to do things like this, to reframe the goal before you even get started. And, and that, you know, slows you down for the next five minutes, but then will make the rest of the experience possibly for years much, much smoother. And I like how you talk about this
0: reframing the goal and you talk about framing different pieces and and how you do that. And I know, so you are a, you bring up reframing difficult difficulties as challenges, excuse me, bringing in research from one of our favorite researchers, Aliyah Crum, right? And talking about mm-hmm. the expectation effect and rethinking stress. So what does reframing do and how does that help us get unstuck?
2: Yeah. So, you know, there are there are certain times when you're stuck, when you're objectively stuck, you know, there's something very specific that you should be doing. Let's say you work as a creative at an ad agency and your boss comes to you and says, I want you to come up with five ideas. And there's, a, there's an objective standard there that, you know, you have to present five distinct ideas and you know whether you've succeeded at that or not. But most of the time, there's a sort of subjective element where it's really, it's, it's about how you feel about that experience. I had this great conversation, on the release of the book with Malcolm Gladwell about his his dad who was a mathematician he spent 30 years working on a problem oh my god and he didn't know the answer to that problem for 3 decades and wow. he loved as malcolm describes it he loved that process he never once felt stuck although by definition he hadn't made progress sometimes <laughs> for for years and so so much of it is interpretation it's it's in your understanding of what it means to be in the situation you're in and so that's why framing is so important and I actually ran a study that I talk about in the book with, with students at Princeton University where I was a grad student. And I, I found students who felt very comfortable there because perhaps their high school was well-represented. You know, every year Lawrenceville High, which is nearby, sends 10 or 15 students to Princeton. So you don't feel like you don't belong. But then also every year you get maybe one student from Wyoming. Yeah. And that student inv- invariably... I dated one of those students, so I, I know what that was like. She, she said, this is a very strange experience to be from Wyoming and to be at Princeton. And so there's, there are very different experiences, but you can interpret that in different ways. You can say to yourself, this is a challenge and I'm going to engage with it. And this is a great opportunity. Or you can say, this is overwhelming. I, I just need to disengage. I don't know what else to do. And so I think the framing as a challenge rather than as a threat is really important. And that's what we found.
0: Mm.
1: Do you think there's a, a DNA component to what allows us to reframe in in some cases? I I wonder this myself when I think about some people are just so adept at just quickly turning on a dime and just say, no, we're not going to look at that as a problem. We're going to look at that as a challenge, and and it's not just hyperbole,
2: but they they really believe it. Uh, and and I wonder where that comes from sometimes. Yeah, it's very interesting. So every everything that we observe in humans is the product of two components, right? One component is it's just how you are. It's an individual difference variable. Maybe you were born that way. Maybe it's genetics. The other component is what you do. And so you can be taught strategies and perhaps it's also partly about the environment you're in and the culture you're in and so on. And that what you can do stuff is the stuff that's that's malleable and that you can be taught to to change. But absolutely, we were talking about creativity briefly you talking about the sort of nimbleness the agility in the face of of challenges and threats and things like that and the ability to change how you your mindset and how you perceive something there is certainly an individual difference component mm. there are optimists and there are pessimists and that is a right. that is an enduring state but it can be shifted to an extent and you can be taught different techniques that i think turn your naturally say pessimistic self into an optimistic self or vice versa so i think that's that's the job of of communicators who who study these ideas
0: i don't know if you you did any research on this but this is just kind of bringing this to mind for me is also within organizations or community groups or however you know some social aspect of this is the the social talk of those is it a difficulty i mean what what is the the leader of that organization saying and how does that impact then the rest of the organization about how they're looking at those things. Is there any research that you've done or that you know of that uh, correlates to that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's essential, especially when you have a very hierarchical organization. Think Tesla with Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. His, his sort of public persona has shifted dramatically over the last few years. And I think as, he, as his sort of image shifts, and the way he behaves shifts, that affects every single person Mm -hmm. who works under him. And that's now true at Twitter as well. And it's true at SpaceX. It's not just true of Elon Musk. In hierarchical organizations where you have essentially, I wouldn't go so far as to call it an autocracy, but you have one person who's very clearly running the ship. The things that that person instills in everyone else, first level managers, and then right below that, all the other employees, it's absolutely critical to the functioning of the organization and, and to the well-being of those individuals, both at work and then at home. So I think it's a huge, huge part of the role of a leader is to instill the right kind of culture and processes that will maximize the welfare of the people who work there.
0: Yeah, I often I often work with organizations and I always talk to, to leaders about 20, 60, 20, kind of. So there's that 20 percent that are always going to be able to have that you know, kind of optimistic perspective. They'll they'll take those, those difficulties and turn them into challenges, right? And then there's the 20 that are probably never going to be able to do that or not very well, at least. And it's that middle 60. And I think what you're just saying is that that leader can really shift that middle 60 around depending upon how they frame the different conversations that they're having for the organization. So- Um, So there wasn't a really question in there. So uh, we'll just- No, I love that. No, no,
2: no, but I love that. What I love about that in particular is that that general idea that I think is so true and it comes up all the time that there are the ends of the spectrum. There are fixed people Mm -hmm. or fixed situations that cannot be shifted, but there is a big chunk in the middle that's malleable and open to yeah. to massaging and do do things a little bit differently and and you can have an effect. It's true about voting. It's true. It's true about all sorts of different areas, yeah. you know. And so I think that's a really nice general framework. Yeah. You offer lots of really great uh, tips in the book. Uh, it's it's very
1: focused on sort of a practicality, which I think is you know just is just going to make it really. I don't know, appealing to lots and lots of people, right? So, but it's also great research-based. And one of, the, one of the things that I thought was really lovely is you're talking about the idea of if you're really stuck, maybe share your situation with someone different. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an expert. It, it could just be kind of anybody. I mean, am I reading that, right? It could just be like, how random can you be about just sharing your idea or just say, this is my situation and, and give me some feedback.
2: Yeah, it's one of the most surprising ideas I came upon in doing the research for the book, which is this idea that it's less important to to bounce your ideas off other people who are competent than it is to bounce your ideas off people who are different from you. Mm. And actually, competence is almost beside the point. Sometimes, as in some of the experiments an objectively incompetent person that you speak to or or AI bot, because that's what some of the research does. Mm-hmm. It's like a sort of chat GPT generative AI bot and you bounce your ideas off this bot that has been trained to give you bad advice, but it's so <laughs> outlandish that you're like, oh, that's I'd never thought about it that way. And there's a good reason you hadn't because you're not a moron. But, <laughs> but having someone push you in that direction can actually be really liberating. It, it gets these weird ideas to unstick themselves in your head and you start thinking differently about things. And so it's very important to find difference much more than it is to find competence.
0: I, that's just fascinating to me, this mm-hmm. idea that it's not about sitting down with somebody else who knows it really well and you guys trying to figure things out, but it's just like, it's saying, hey, look at things from a different perspective. and, and Throwing such outland! I love this idea of the bot just designed necessarily to do the wrong. Maybe this is why it answers. works so well for us. <laughs> <laughs> am, am I the am I the moron that just does <laughs> those stupid ideas for YouTube? Is that how just that the works? The opposite. Yeah. <laughs> actually,
1: maybe it's just the opposite.
0: <laughs> you you talk about um, failing well in the book as well, and so can you can you give our listeners a little bit of what you mean by that? And is there an optimal fail? level that we should be striving for?
2: Yeah. So there's a a really important question is what is failure for? You know, not everything has a purpose, but I think failure does. And its purpose is to move you closer to some sort of desired endpoint, which often means acquiring a new skill, learning a language, learning how to paint, learning how to write a particular kind of music and so on. And failure is the sort of necessary component of the process of getting better at something. Because if you never fail, obviously you're never trying something that's hard for you and you're never therefore growing. And so failure is essential. So failing well basically means failing the right amount and in the right way. The right amount varies, but there's an absurdly precise number of 15.87% from one study.
0: (laughs) Yes. That yes. is a oddly precise it's, number. It is, <laughs> yes. it is
2: bizarrely precise, but these researchers say, in our findings, we've decided, decided that <laughs> you should be failing fifteen point eight seven percent of the time. Which, of course, if you fail fifteen point eight eight percent of the time, you're failing. <laughs> it's a, it's a meta fail, <laughs> so that's ugh, problematic. Ugh. But anyway, you're supposed to fail. I'd say roughly between one in four and one in one in six and one in four times. Oh. So say fifteen to twenty five percent of. The the time. And and what that does is it signals a level of difficulty that is optimal for maximal learning. If it's much more difficult than that, you're just overwhelmed and you're not quite at the point yet where you should be doing something where you're failing over and over and over again. If If you're failing much less than that, it's probably too easy and you're not growing either. So if growth is your ideal and you're trying to move past a period of stuckness, that sort of one in six to one in four ratio of failing, I think is about right. The other thing is to ask... What do the failures look like over mm. time? So it's not just about how often you're failing, it's what those failures look like and whether they get smaller and whether the gulf between you and where you now and you where you wanna be is shrinking so that it's no longer a gulf, it becomes just a much smaller gap. And if that's happening, if you're converging on the en- ultimate end game here, then that's great. And then you're failing in, in a way that's productive. But if you find that you're still consistently failing about the same amount or that you're even failing more over time, and you're diverging from the outcome, then that's that's failing poorly. Mm. Uh, it it really is interesting. Uh,
1: this uh, I had a conversation with a friend recently who is a, a retired executive from a very large biomedical uh, firm in the United States, and he uh, and so upon retirement, he he took up guitar and painting and sculpture and and running, and so like this beginner's mindset, this this learner's mm-hmm. mindset is. Wonderful. Right. But I think something that accompanies all of this is that when I, when I press him, I'm like, well, you know, you're not like super young. What do you want to do with this? You know, I've been playing guitar since I was 10. I've got a head start on you (laughs) kind of, where do you want to go with it? And he, and then he calibrated and and he had these very clear definitions of, I just want to be able to play, take me home country roads for my wife. Like, Hmm. like, so he, so, and, and it reminds me, you know, you talk about constraints, uh, in the book, as being liberating, and yeah. and and so I was wondering if you, if you could talk about about where liberation and creativity, you know, kind of come together.
2: Yeah, so I think the world is is full of options, right? And uh, they're not all available to everyone. But career, what I'm going to do with my life, what I want to do with my time, do I want to learn an instrument? Do I want to learn to paint? Do I want to learn to run? These are all options that are available to many of us, and many of them are not expensive, and therefore, they're widely available to to pretty much anyone. You just have to make a decision about what you're going to do. And once you get into a particular domain, you often have lots of options. So let's say you decide, hey, I want to be an artist. The more you delve into that process, especially visual arts or painting, the more you realize there are a million different ways to do it. Mm. I talk about this in the book, actually, specifically about an artist who was overwhelmed when the style that he was practicing was no longer available to him because he developed a neurological tremor. And so he couldn't use the precise brush strokes needed for that kind of art that he had perfected. And he was like, what do I do now? There are so many other kinds of art. And so what he did was he artificially constrained himself by saying, for example, I'm gonna make an artwork that costs no more than a dollar, or I'm gonna make an artwork using only my feet or using a two by four or whatever. And the reason it's liberating is because you spend so much time focused on the wrong things, on on this wealth of options that you're going to have to leave behind, that as soon as you constrain yourself, you can really focus on the thing that matters. And I'm an artist and I'm colorblind. I draw and I paint, um, but I can't see color. So what will happen is I'll do a a work that will last me a year. I'll take a year on this work, but I'll spend like six months stuck because I'm trying to work out whether the grass is the right color, the Mm. right shade. And and so what I started to do, I started doing this maybe 15 years ago, was I just said, I what am I even doing playing with color? Like, maybe I don't need color. <laughs> Why, you know, constrain myself? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and then I learned about this great artist, this French artist, Pierre Soulage, who passed away a few years ago at the age of 105, who only painted with black. And I was like, that's it. That's for me. I'm the colorblind. What am I doing <laughs> fussing with blues and greens? And it changed the way I it meant that I could focus on technique. And I I loved that experience of being liberated by the constraint.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Is the <laughs> is the painting behind you? Is that one of yours that we can kind no. of see? Oh, okay.
2: It's not. Most of my paintings are um are at my house in Australia with my parents. But oh, okay. uh,
0: yeah.
1: Well it's good that you've got a collector, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. interested in your exactly. work. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I certainly get that. I wanted to get back to this idea of, of, you know, constraints and something that came up shortly after that in the book was about friction audits. Mm -hmm. And I thought that this was a really wonderful concept in the way that you, you know, the way that you look at your own life. Right. So much, so much, I think, of what you're talking about is, you know, take time, pause, uh, actually reframe. But a friction audit is a really clever concept. Can you can you share with our listeners what a friction audit is?
2: Yeah, sure. So this began actually as a professional endeavor. I, I was doing a lot of consulting with companies and they were asking me essentially what they ask every consultant, how do we spend not, to, not so much money to make a lot of money? <laughs> and you know how do we get the best return on our modest investment? And some of them were startups and some of them were big companies, big corporations. Some of them were government agencies. Some of them were nonprofits. So it varied pretty dramatically. But what I what I basically came to these questions with was a mindset that you have essentially two options especially when you're dealing with people and you're trying to get them to do something whether it's buy your product or donate to your charity or whatever it might be you can sweeten the deal so if you you can make the carrot more attractive in in carrot and stick language and so you can say here look we've just covered this carrot in syrup and now it's delicious and now you should <laughs> buy this carrot <laughs> so that's that turns out to be really expensive because every company and every organization that's seeking your money and time and whatever else is covering it's carrots in syrup. So that's, that's a sort of losing battle. Or what you can do is you can say, hey, you know, another way I could spend my money is to remove the friction between where people are right now and where I'd like them to be. Make the process of engaging with my organization, donating to my charity, whatever, much, much less filled with friction. And so that's what a friction audit is. It's an attempt to look at a process and to say, where are their little speed humps? Where are their points of friction or barriers or hurdles? And how can we systematically remove them? And companies don't routinely do this. Governments don't routinely do this. Charities don't routinely do this. But when they do, they find massive rises in conversion rates, which basically means people buying their stuff, donating to their charities and so on. And it's it's really inexpensive. And so there's a three-part process. The first thing is working out where those are. And I mm-hmm. explain this in the book, how you do that. The second part is saying, okay, so we found this friction point how do we sand it down? How do we fix it? And then the third part is, have we done a good job? And that applies to our own personal lives as well. Um, there are friction points in our lives, and you, you could probably, if you introspect about it, you'll, you'll think pretty quickly about areas where you don't, they don't have to be major sticking points, but where you're like, this is a thing either I don't really enjoy that I have to do a lot, or it's hard, or it's, I don't get much value from it, That's a friction point. And then the next question is, how can I invest a little time and money, maybe more time than money, figuring out how to fix it or sand sand it down? It's been a very useful practice for me and for a lot of the people that I've worked with. Is a great practice. um,
0: And the way that you describe it in the book, I think is really good. So all of our listeners go out and buy the book and so you can learn exactly how to do it um, for yourself, but also for your organization, if you have that. Another piece that I thought was really fascinating is this idea of hardship inoculation, the idea of taking, uh, you know, this idea from um, medicine and, 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 you know, using it, but for hardship. So can you talk a little bit about that as well?
2: Yes. Uh, so this concept borrows, at least metaphorically, from the idea of vaccination or inoculation, the idea that you introduce a small dose of something into the body that t- basically teaches the body how to deal with larger doses down the road, we're all very familiar with this concept from uh, the pandemic over the last few years. And so that's, that's the idea behind the term hardship inoculation. And as the term suggests, in theory, you should be able to inocula- inoculate yourself against big doses of hardship by enduring small doses today. So what that means, for example, is that if you have a child who's say five or six or seven, that's my kids are five and seven. And you know my, my son might be sitting down to do a math puzzle or a math problem. And he he gets to a point where it's hard, Mm -hmm. a little bit difficult. He's not enjoying it all that much. I have two options as a parent. And this can apply to to self-talk as well. It doesn't have to be about a, a child. One thing you can do is you could try to figure out what people so fondly refer to as hacks. You know, like there's turns out there's an easy way to do long division. Let me just show you and then you never have to think about it again. And I think there's some value in learning those techniques for the sake of the technique, but I don't think that's a very good general way to approach the world which is to run the other direction every time something gets hard. So kind of sitting with something that's difficult and, and pushing through it is really, really valuable. We know this from a lot of, of data. Um, I ran a really interesting, I think it's a really interesting study. It's one of my favorite studies that I've run. I can say that because I was one of the mo- most distant authors on the paper. It was an economist <laughs> who took the lead. And, and he, I, he came to me and he said, check out the results here. And I was like, that's fascinating. So this is not, not a case where I spearheaded the thing. But what he's found was that if you look at NCAA college basketball teams, they are assigned before the main season to a preseason of games, and those games are largely randomly determined. And some years you will have a very difficult preseason where you're playing teams that are much better than you, and some years you'll have an easy preseason where the teams are not much, uh, are either not better than you or they're much worse than you. And what the research found, or what he found. Was that the hardness of that preseason schedule predicted how you did in the season and the conference tournament itself? So, and there is no ceiling to this. The harder it was in the preseason, the better you do later on. And this goes in the face of what a lot of coaches think. They think their job is to build up confidence. Yeah, it's it's true to a point. You don't want to destroy the confidence of a young player who's maybe fledgling, just coming into the game. Um, and that's another theme of the book. But once you get over a certain hurdle hardship is really, really good for you. A decent dose is good for you. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause when, just as you were talking
0: about, when I read that, I was like going, I know of college coaches who really want that easy schedule because, all right, I'm going to make sure that my team like understands what it's like to win and feels that, you know, the, the joy that you get from that. But this, Research is saying no. You should really be looking at this from a different perspective of how can we make sure that we're getting the best uh, components out of our team, so in the long run, they're going to have a better performance. And I, 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 it was just really again kind of anti, uh, you know, my my initial inclination about how that should be run. So that was I thought that was really great.
2: Um, yeah, I, I, I'll say it's not just you. I, I had a, a meeting at the Australian Institute of Sport about six or seven years ago this these are the top sports coaches in all of australia they coach olympians and they coach professional teams and and they were all in this room a whole lot of them and i said to them tell me what would you do would you give your your team the easy or the hard 50-50 split okay so oh. this even in the world of professionals Professional coaches, they don't have strong intuitions about, or at least they're split. Who you would think should know this, right? This is the part you there. Would think so. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, keeping on the basketball theme, right? Um, so in the book, you, in, in chapter on diversity, you tell a great story about NBA player, Shane Battier, you know, mm-hmm. and about how he helped make his teams win more games, even though if you looked at his overall, you know, game, he was not necessarily what you would consider an all-star. He was, you know, pretty, you know, medium at best, right? And so, um, but what is it about, um, you know, that kind of connection, that glue person on the team that Shane was that makes that happen?
2: I think what I love about the Shane Battier story is, um, first of all, it was first told by Michael Lewis who yeah. had written about Moneyball. And so he he has this longstanding interest in how you can use statistics and numbers and data to improve how you manage basketball teams and predict, and not just basketball teams, but sports teams in general, bi- baseball obviously as well. And so he's got this, this long-standing interest in how you can use, use data to improve a team. But But when you have data, one of the critical questions you have to ask yourself is, am I looking at the right statistics? And the statistics we tend to privilege A lot of the time, even in team sports, are are very individual focused. Mm -hmm. They're things like how how good is this person? How many shots does this person make? What percentage of shots? How many times does this person connect with the baseball, etc. You know, it's all it's very focused on what are you as an individual bringing to this team. But those stats miss something important that there is a sort of more abstract quality that some people like Battyer have, which is that you, as you said you could be the glue for the team. It's that when you get there, you are personally unselfish and perhaps not all that talented relative to the other players on those individual metrics. But it just so happens that when you are on the court, your team scores many more points than when you're not on the court. That is a new statistic that had to be developed for for players like Badia. And that's exactly what Lewis talks about. He basically says that Bader got on the court and whenever he was on the court, the coaches were like, he's a miracle. We don't understand it. We can't <laughs> look at any particular number and tell you what's going on, but he's deeply unselfish. He's unbelievably strategic. He is a genius. He was known to be very, very intellectually bright. And so he knew more about all the opposing players than anyone else, often more than his coaches did. They would give him big packets of information to wade through and say, is there anything here we should know? And he would look at all this information and say, like a savant, oh yeah, the player with the five on his jersey, we should know this about him. And so he was a great unsticking agent, not because he was individually so talented, but because he liberated everyone else to play a different way.
0: So in thinking about being unstuck, so there are those people, but is there a way that we can identify them for things outside of basketball that we are, if if we're looking, I mean, is that something that we, tend to overlook because we are kind of finding, going almost back to your uh, conversation earlier, it's not necessarily finding that competent person to talk about, but it's somebody maybe who just has a different perspective and different viewpoint. H- how do we find those chains, or is that even something that we can be doing purposefully?
2: You can, and that's that's what happened with him, right? Yeah. That uh, at some point, someone very bright said, hang on a second, this guy's really good. We don't know why there's a magic to him. No matter when he, he jumped from team to team and his teams always did better when he was there. And as soon as he left, the team started doing more poorly. So someone's had the bright idea to say, what is the magic here? And so I think the the, the the most abstract lesson there is look for that magic and try to figure out what it, what it is. And very often it's not captured by traditional statistics or metrics. Hmm. Um, and so- this when you're talking about teams and diversity and different opinions and so on you know there's a big section in the book on this you you are looking for someone especially in in team or group contexts you're looking for someone who makes lifts the whole enterprise up and that is often not what you find people for you when you interview people for for jobs or for positions whether you're putting them on a team or not you treat them as individuals and that's often a mistake um and so that the idea there is Try to make the interview process, the assessment process, as we call this, ecologically valid as possible. In other words, that matches what's actually going to be happening. So if you want to know if Shane Batty is going to be a good good addition to your team, you've got to watch him play with other players. And then you get the, the magic starts to make itself known. Mm. I, I mean, th- this is
1: bands. I mean, w- when I think 100%. about right? I mean, this is how pop music, uh, I mean, uh, even I, I could even point to classical music, you know, that you know, that uh, Herbert von Karajan and the Vienna Symphony went together so perfectly because they really gelled. I mean, they actually gelled as as musicians, not just because von Karajan was just fantastic with Beethoven. It's because they actually all kind of understood each other. And and seemed, it was like the, the rising tide, you know, bringing all
2: the boats up, right? But this is, I mean, you've seen this in pop music as well. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of... Um... Mystical quality to what happens when you put just the right people together in the right room, and um, there are really interesting papers written. I, I I went down a rabbit hole, and a lot of this didn't appear in the book, but I found a series of papers that were sort of anthropological exercises in trying to understand what makes a great band. And these these researchers, which I, I wish I'd got into this line of research, they would just <laughs> sit with a band. And just watch the band jam and play for sometimes days on end. And then they'd write this report and they'd be like, well, then the drummer did this. And then the the guitarist did this. And then let me just tell you, there was something really magical that happened. We're not sure exactly why, but it liberated something in the the singer. And then he came out with this incredible melody. And suddenly there was this riff that came from the bassist and they were trying to piece together what, what is such an organic process and to turn it into something a bit more algorithmic so that other bands could read this and say, oh, it turns out that when the drummer does that, that's really good for the bassist, you know? And, and so this, there's this constant attempt to take, especially creative domains that do seem a little bit above it all and a little bit maybe kind of fuzzy and to make them tractable where you can replicate the magic. But you're right, so much of it is kind of hard. It's hard to do that with.
1: Did they, how successful were they with, with this particular project? Did, did they come up with an algorithm?
2: Tim wants to know. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what always happens with these papers when they're successful, what they end up doing is they say, we began by trying to understand why bands are good. And then and then they come away saying, we discovered one incredibly narrow, precise thing that we think yes, might explain okay. the goodness of one in a thousand bands. And yeah. so they, they sort of, they get less, I guess, ambitious over time. Yeah. But, but some of them I think are really interesting. Like they, the one was about creative conflict. And and how conflict can play a role in generating great musical ideas and artistic ideas in general. And so, you know, there's this question: Do you want consonance in a band where people are just always agreeing and there's harmony and they they just build on each other and they love each other, or do you want do you want a situation where actually there's a bit of there's a bit of disagreement? There's like a black sheep in the band who always disagrees with everyone else to some extent, or maybe you know that the two main players in the band are, are are in opposition in some way and they they found some i think reasonably compelling evidence that much of the time as long as it's done in a cordial way that disagreement is very, very productive.
1: Lennon and McCartney. Exactly.
2: It? I was going to say that, and then I yes, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. W- watching the right? documentary in particular, I thought yeah. was fascinating. The Netflix documentary. Yeah.
0: Well, but even uh, going to the Beatles, right? You you go and you look replacing Best with Ringo Starr, and you kind of right. you kind of go, all right, is that you know magical elixir that all of a sudden kind of brought them up to that next level of 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 being a, a band that kind of. Broke through and did all the great right things that they did. Yeah, you. Sorry, I, I go off on. You're these, not these jumping tangents. out of music, are you? You're not going to pull <laughs> us away. from- I was going to pull us out of music. Are you wanting to go back into music? I mean, There's you got so music much to cover into the like main level of our conversation, <laughs> which I thought you would just be ecstatic about, and you could just like let it go for that. But no, you want never to go back enough. Music? Never enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do want to ask this because I have been um, a longtime advocate of UBI, um, universal basic income. You talk about that. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your thoughts and how that relates to breakthroughs?
2: Yeah. So the, the basic idea is there's, there's actual evidence on uh, entrepreneurs in countries where they introduce UBI and where in particular entrepreneurs are told you're going to get a certain amount of money every month, no strings attached, which will allow you to be creative for a while. And what they find is that these people who get the, their their incomes taken care of are much more productive, their, their uh, ideas are much more successful, their businesses are much more successful, they end up making much more money, they become generally more successful. And the basic idea is that when you're not worried about the very basics, like how to afford food and shelter and so on and taking care of other people and whatever else matters to you. There's a huge part of your brain that is then deleveraged and is available to be used in creative enterprises. So creativity is in, infringed upon by the kind of mundane pedestrian worries we have about, you know, will I have, this is not pedestrian, but will I have food on the table tomorrow mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that gets in the way of creativity. On a certain level, that's not surprising. But UBI for me, if you want a population that can do its best, that can live up to its potential, that it can produce interesting ideas, that can produce scientific patents and medical advances and great music and great culture and so on, you need those people to not be focused on where the next crumb is coming from. Mm. And so that's, that's why I think it's such a valuable idea. And the no strings attached part of it, I think, is also really important because no one knows better what they should be spending on in general than the person who has has that extra freedom to spend. There is always that absurdly um, paternalistic myth that when you give people money, they won't know how to spend it. Well, I think that's most of the time complete nonsense. I think there are certainly times it's true, but I think in general, letting people decide is the way to go. And that's what the research says.
0: Yeah. It's it's always interesting when that paternalistic comes in, well, they're just going to spend it on you know, drugs and whatever else, or, you know, the right. playing video games, they're not going to be productive. And, and all of the research that I've seen to the same point is, A, they're more creative, but they also, they're, they're actually living their lives in manners that are going to be helping society out more so than not. And so that's the really kind of neat thing that I always bring to the the, the table on this as we're going forward. All right, Mr. Hulhan, I'll let you go back <laughs> to your music. All right. Wow,
1: (laughs) Adam! There are tons of musical references in the book just just tons. Uh, I mean, at one point I was making a list, and the the diversity is fantastic. Why? Thank you. Why so many musical references?
2: I I love music. I think it's I think it's fascinating, but I also enjoy it just because aesthetically it pleases me. And lots of different kinds of music. And because of that, I think whatever you're interested in, you spend a lot of time focused on. And I, I have this series of documents that I've had for probably 20 years. Some of them are probably the oldest documents that I have. The, I'm talking about saved on my you know, computer. But one of them is just interesting ideas. And so anytime I'm writing a book, this is my third book. Anytime I'm writing a book, I'll go to this document and I'll comb it and I'll go through it. And it's really long now. And I'll say, hey, what have I been interested in in the last 10, 15 years? Like, what are the themes that keep popping up? And what are the, what are the examples that I have found over time? So maybe 10 years ago, I read something in Rolling Stone and thought it was interesting and filed it away and never looked at it again. And I'll do that over and over and over across time. And it just turns out that that document is, is just very heavily populated with music case studies. <laughs> and that's because I'm spending so much time reading about music. And so that's what ends up being in the book. And that's why I, I think if you're talking about getting unstuck, creative domains are, are a key place where people get stuck or you learn a lot of lessons about getting unstuck. And so I, I think that's why so much of the book focuses on on musical creativity and the musical process. Can you tell us a little bit about that
0: document? How, how I mean, do you just keep it ongoing? Is it set in sections? Help, help us understand how that document works for you.
2: Yeah, so I have more than one. Um, okay. There are different ones for different purposes. I have one for teaching, so that's how I form the examples, case studies for my classes. I have one for um, just general interest, and then I have one for books. But basically, the way all of them work is anytime I see something interesting of any kind, even if I haven't fully read it and fully unpacked it, I will put the link to it and a brief description of what I think it is in this document. And the document is really long. I've I've done this with research ideas as well. So I'm a, a scientist and I do a lot of research. And so I have 200 ideas that if I had 10 lifetimes, I could study all of the things in there. Some of them I have, most of them I haven't. And so it's really just a sort of ongoing compendium of the things at any moment in time that interest me. And I can see how it shifts across time. And then when I go back and try to condense it all into what have I been interested in the last decade, I can I can answer that in a coherent way.
1: And are there musical stories in all of these, in research or books or
2: teaching? Or d- does music show up in, across all of these domains? It does. I'll tell you about one of my favorite research projects. I, and I first got into this because I got very curious about music that sounds happy versus music that sounds sad and whether that's the popularity of those two broad kinds of music, we'll be very broad about it for a minute, shifts across um, economic cycles. And what I ended up finding, and it wasn't just about music, but what, what we found was that when the economy is tanking, bubblegum pop, happy stuff, really light, and this is true about books, light and fluffy books, light and fluffy movies, rom-coms. Uh, it's even true about New Yorker cartoons. We worked with Bob Mankoff at the New Yorker. And um, so we, we got access to thousands, tens of thousands of New Yorker cartoons. And basically anytime the economy is tanking, people look for the happy, fluffy stuff Anytime the economy is doing well, they're like, I think I'm ready to grapple with things that have a bit more complexity and edge to them. And so music gets darker. Comedy gets much darker as well. So comedy is a big part of it. You look at the shift of comedy in tone across time. It matches these broad kind of cultural situations in which the comedy emerged, um, which we found really fascinating.
1: That is fascinating. I First of all, you just remind me of Alan Kruger and his mm-hmm. love of, you know, the rockonomics uh, kind yeah. of thing. That, that's pretty fantastic. You know, I, I did want to go back. I'm curious about your particular perspective on the story you tell about Bob Dylan taking, or, or sort of fashioning, blowing in the wind after Odetta's uh, song, No More Auction Block. Mm-hmm. And I was one, and there was some claims like, you know, Dylan stole this from her. And, and then Odetta came on, you know, and publicly said, well, hey, he's just carrying on the tradition.
2: And I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, I've been very interested in, in plagiarism and creativity for a long time. And I think my, my sense is that it's very, very rare for people, especially people in the public eye, to rip something off thinking that they're going to get away with it later on that doesn't happen all that often. And so there, in the book, I go through all the possible psychological explanations for two things that end up seeming similar, like the two examples you just mentioned, the Dylan and Odette example. Um, and this happens all the time. There are constant cases. The Ed Sheeran case was the most yeah. recent example yeah. of this. Th- this. This, is. There are ongoing cases in the courts all the time about whether something is, is a ripoff or whether it's original enough to stand on its own. And I, I generally think that what happens is... And this used to happen to me when I was much younger as well, when I try to compose my own stuff, is you don't know where it comes from, but by osmosis, if you consume enough information, you lose the source. You don't remember where it comes from, but the the shadow of it remains. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you'll hear a a melody from Beethoven. I remember this as a kid. I, I went to my parents one day. I was like, check out this amazing piece that I just composed on this little piano that I had they were like, yeah, that's Ode to Joy. Um, <laughs> it was you. It was me. It, it was you. <laughs> but you changed a little bit of it, right? I did. Uh, I, I, like, tweaked, yeah. I, tweaked it. I tweaked it. I polished it for him. Yeah. I it. <laughs> it's I, like
0: I improved on it. There you Thank go. God. Yeah. <laughs> Thank but, God. But that happens,
2: I think, all the time. And I think it happens to adults as well, that if you listen to enough stuff, You end up hoovering it up and it gets mashed up and then some bits of it might then shine through in the work you do. And I think that's what happened with Dylan and what Odetta was saying was it's carrying on the folk tradition. It's just basically, you know, turning it into something slightly different, slightly new. And I think that happens a lot. And I think we often don't know it's happening. I think it's usually not nefarious. I'm not going to say that every time, but most of the time it's not nefarious.
0: I think there's something to that, too, that, you know, we as humans find certain Rhythm, certain tunes, just pleasing. And so, you know, th- there's there's only so many of those that can come up right. that aren't discordant. And so, you know, that element in and of itself, and I think even from creative storytelling, you look at, at movies and you kind of go, mm-hmm. that movie, you could take the plot line and just, you know, plunk it from here and put it in with different characters over here, but they're different. And, and they're different enough most times if that's not intentionally ripping them off that it can add to, it's almost like, you know, when I did my PhD and I'm looking at my dissertation, it's like, don't try to save the world is what I always said. But, you know, you add this bit of, you know, knowledge to the literature, right? And so you're Mm -hmm. adding that little bit to the literature. And I think sometimes maybe we we over-index on oh, they're ripping it off. And as opposed to just saying, let's just enjoy this for what it is, you know? So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think you're right. I think we privilege radical originality. And we also think that a lot of things are radically original when they aren't. And that's a mistake. (laughs) So, so we, we, because we privilege it, we see a sort of moral good in something that's genuinely novel, totally new, one of a kind that when something is really an incremental shift an evolution, rather than a revolution, we, we say something like, oh, that was ripped off or it was stolen or whatever. But almost everything, like the reason I picked on Dylan there is because so many people say, oh yeah, he was the truly original mind in music, in pop music and folk music of the 20th century, which you may believe, but even there you can find these, these you know, the shoulders of giants that he had stood upon. Yeah. And so I think that's almost universal. There's two,
1: two musical questions that I want to ask you. Being so interested in music as you are, can you listen to music while you work? Yes, absolutely. Really, is the so you know uh, Melanie Brooks at Columbia is, has been doing some research in this to try to understand sort of correlation between wh- where people fall on this, you know, complete silence or having something that's that's uh, you know not very melodic versus something that's just pop.
2: What what kind of music do you like to listen to while you're while you're working? It varies. It's got to be something that I know really well, because if it's not, I'll spend too much time focused on the music. (laughs) So I would never, like new album comes out, I'm excited to listen to it. And then I put it on and try to write my book. Never going to happen. Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. But what it'll, it'll be one of two kinds of music. It'll either be something, and this could be from any genre that I know really well, or it could be, I listen to a lot of electronic music. Mm. EDM specifically? EDM. Yeah. Mainly trance house, trance, uh, usually vocal free. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's got a beat to it and I, I, I will pick the cadence that makes sense. I'm also a runner. So I, I run to the beat of really, I mean, you, I run it basically 180 steps a minute. So I have to find this really fast 180 beat per minute music. Wow. Which is insane. I mean, yes. it's really, <laughs> yeah. it's really fast, but so when I'm, when I'm writing, I don't want 180 beats a minute cause I'll start writing like a crazy person, <laughs> but, but there's a, there's a, There's a cadence that makes sense to me and helps me kind of move forward like a train kind of chugging along. And so I certainly do listen to music when I write, not all the time, but a lot of the time.
1: Interesting. Uh, And then if you were to be stuck on a desert island for a year, you get two musical artists, you get the whole catalog, but you just get two to take with you. What two musical artists would you take along with you? Oh, that's a hard, that's an impossible
2: question. (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it on its head a little bit. I hope this is okay. Um, there's really interesting research that says that your, your musical tastes crystallize. They can shift, but they crystallize and get pretty hardened between the ages of about 19 and 22, um, which a lot of researchers have found. So I'm going to try to think of two artists that can take me back to that period, that formative period. So that, for me, that was like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, let me think, what was I listening to then? I, a really happy time for me was the the sort of 90s grunge era so i i want to take one of those with me even though it's it's um i don't know if i could always listen to it but i i'd, I'd want that that'll be the, my one bookend. so i'm going to say alice in chains
0: okay oh
2: cool that's my my uh, probably my grunge pick and then something a little bit different
1: yeah right we're we're uh, novelty seeking we're,
2: yeah. yeah yeah i need i definitely need something to, to balance alice in chains <laughs> <laughs> good call good call I think something either classical or um, folk, or like maybe Dylan. Maybe Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I,
1: his catalog is diverse. It so. is diverse. I'm getting the and whole catalog, large. so I should
2: take
0: it.
1: Yeah, yeah. and it's
0: large. Yeah. I have to say Adam I think you probably put more thought into that than any guest that we have ever. Had. Really? Yeah, I mean the, it, it the, feels the, like such a the, personal the, question. <laughs> you know, most people either it's oh. just like a flippant oh this and this or that's just my two favorite artists at the time or whatever it would be but you put some definite like thought I got into it. You got stuck there for a minute. You, <laughs> yeah. you could see the you could see your brain kind of just almost, you know, the wheels turning in there. So, yeah, right. And,
1: Yeah, Uh, Adam, it's been such a pleasure to have you as a guest. Thank you for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, I loved it. Thank you.
0: Welcome to our Grooving Session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Adam, have a free flowing conversation and groove on whatever else comes into our stuck brains. He knew I was going. You, I knew that. You, you knew that. I knew yeah. that. That I was that. that was our entire episode. A knowingness with yes. with John Molasik, where you knew I was going to say that. But yeah, yes. there we go. No, that was good. It it we do get stuck. Well, Status quo bias
1: aside, you know we just get stuck
0: sometimes. What I love about this is, it is an inevitable piece of our human existence. We get stuck. We falter. We get stuck in this rut, the idea that, ah, I just don't have the inspiration. I don't have the energy. I don't have whatever. And it's important to get unstuck. And that is what I think Adam, and he just brings in such great stories. The book, and again, we've had this conversation. It will be in my top 10 books at the end of this year. Uh, it is well-written. I think it is more than just being unstuck. It's a, it's kind of a treaty, on Thinking about life and how we live our lives and what we need to be thinking about and how we go about doing that. So, uh, but we'll talk about that Agreed. later. So, can can we just in the speed round, I had mentioned this bubblegum
1: pink thing on the for painting in the kids' room. Can you, that actually came from his first book. Can you just give us a little... So you know.
0: so we were going to go back to that and we never went back to it. So just for our listeners who I know are sitting there wanting completion, right? Oh, What, <laughs> what is this? So um bubblegum pink is actually uh, drunk tank pink is another name they call it. And it was based on this research um, done by Alexander Schaus back in the 1970s who looked at color, how colors impact Aggressiveness and various different pieces, and what he found is that a certain shade of pink, which ended up he he called it Baker Miller pink because he worked with the Naval Academy, and he convinced um, Baker and Miller, who were the directors of the Naval Academy, to experiment using different colors, and they came up with this final pinkish color. It is that pink that's kind of it's Ugh. the bubblegum pink, right? And and the yeah, different things. And yeah. what they found. Uh, was that it had a calming effect, and uh, that you, uh, when you were in rooms with that, your aggression levels fell, heart rate fell, and a variety of other things that kind of came with it. And so it was really interesting. So- so of course the navy decided to use it in all the war rooms, right? <laughs> well, what they <laughs> did, calm is they down. put it in, and what, what prison wardens started to put it in their jails, and so thus right, the drunk right. ta- or like the drunk tank. So like when drunk people come in, they're all agitated, and they put them in that, and supposedly that helped. My favorite, though, being a University of Iowa alum, is Hayden Fry, yeah. the football coach of of the University of Iowa. When I went there, painted the. Um, Visitor's locker room pink in order to (laughs) decrease their aggressive nature and to make them and they even did the urinals pink in the in the visitor's locker room. So very interesting about that. So anyway, so uh, does it work? Um, obviously, you know, there was, there's some research for and some research against, you know, not everything has replicated. So on the, on the whole, if I'm doing the Annie Duke, my certainty around this, I would say 80 to 90% that there's some validity with this to that, what extent I'm not sure, but yeah, it's fascinating Uh, though. Color does impact our moods. We know that that's pretty much a ninety-nine percent certainty, um, but is the pink calming for everybody? Maybe, maybe not. So,
1: okay, thank you, thank
0: you for that. Um, <laughs> the long diatribe. I wanted to. Sorry, there you go. that was
1: great. No, I that was exactly what I was hoping for. I wanted to start our grooving session to talk about hardship inoculation because I saw uh, over the weekend. I, I thought about this when I saw a woman wearing a T-shirt and it said, "I'm done with the." If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Stuff, <laughs> and that's kind of that's it's it's a sarcastic and hyperbolic view, but that's kind of what the idea is about this this toughening that that can happen through through uh, strenuous or challenging situations yeah. that we learn to
0: rise right. above. That, them. that preseason hardiness predicts regular season play. So you should be getting really good because you have to work with me all the time and you're getting the hardship inoculation every time you have to do one of these with every, me, you have to overcome every damn all my week. crappy oh, shit yeah. and you have to make it better. So there you go. It's so, so easy for me in my new <laughs> job, totally. Yeah. So here's the, my question though, and this was interesting because you know we talked about this from teams and different pieces, but what areas of our life does this really come into play? I mean, you can think about it from work. But what about hobbies? What about relationships? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. it, is the fact that I ha- I went through, you know, a couple relationships prior to you know finding my wife and getting married, and did that uh, help me? Because I realized what I was getting, and I don't think that's hardship inoculation. I don't think that's it. But it's still interesting, I, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, but there is there is something to be said about the resistance and then learning how to deal with it. You know, it's right. I mean, when I think about like hobbies, when I think about playing guitar, if you don't practice, you won't get good. You actually won't have a good callus. And that's where it gets, it's difficult, right? This idea of, you
0: know, yeah, there's. Yeah, that period
1: leading up to hard calluses is hard. But with the point that you complete that hardship, you literally do get uh, inoculated against you know, future yeah. pain. Playing playing the instrument gets easier when you have good calluses,
0: yeah. and it's just like exercise, right? The more you do, you your muscles get ba- you can do better at things, right? That's how you progress. And and if you don't stress your muscles, your muscles don't get built. Um, and it reminded me of going back uh, to Jonathan Haidt and um, Greg uh, Lukianoff, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, about the coddling of the American mind, uh, where they yeah. talk about this element of how, as parents in the 90s and 2000s, probably even maybe going back a little bit before that, we kind of did the helicopter parenting, the, the overprotectiveness. And so kids never had to face kind of real hardships, like social hardships. They're like, you know, it was, there wasn't that element of, hey, we're playing this game that we don't have parents around and I don't want to play it and you do and or we disagree on something and you have to figure that out. You have to, you know, face some hardship and and pain sometimes. Mm-hmm. And not that bullying is good, but there's an element of overcoming those difficulties that they state, you know, doesn't do children good. It actually creates this element where um, any slight aggression gets viewed and overly indexed upon and isn't good for our mental health and the amount of suicides and other things are up with that, you know? Well,
1: I I, I also go back to our conversation with Danny Oppenheimer when we were at Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is going back to episode 64. Uh, when we talked to him about the helicopter and versus the snowplow parents. Submarine parenting, right? yeah. The submarine parents who were really going yeah. low. Who I think Danny said like one parent was like willing to let their child play next to the space, next to the pool where the alligator was, but not in the pool. <laughs> like, you know, like, or something crazy like that. but. I have to think about the consequences of, from a parenting perspective. I think in a big way. And of course, Jonathan Haidt um, and Greg L- Lukianoff uh, certainly discussed that. But in our own lives, maybe we don't always choose the easiest path. Maybe there are some assignments in our work career that are good at, at could be good at building up some resistance. Uh, or or just some strength, uh, some
0: inoculation
1: that could help us uh, further down yeah. the road.
0: And I think it's it's that again overcoming piece and part yeah, of it yeah. for me. And this is really interesting because we're seeing. Uh, so uh, my daughter, um, for her school, is doing a week long bike ride, and they're doing anywhere between like eighteen and twenty five miles a day over the course of four days, and. Uh, my wife took Elise, my daughter, on that uh, bike trip over the past weekend, Memorial Day weekend that we had. And it was 23 miles, but it was on gravel roads. It was up and down. It was all of these things. And hard. it was hard. And uh, in talking with Elise, it was interesting. But the thing that I think she got out of it was, well, that's going to be harder than anything i'm doing on this bike trip so i ah. i have this more confidence of going into it and i thought that was a really interesting take this idea that because i was able and i think that's part of like what i've realized too in difficult conversations with clients when something gets messed up or other pieces where i used to just really get worked up about it and i still do i mean it's not like i just just dis- disregard it but i know that I've gone through this before. It's not the end of the world. We are going to survive this. And having been inoculated to a certain degree by having to have gone through some of these before, I'm better prepared and I think I do it better um, because I don't have that, that pit in my stomach as we're moving forward, so.
1: Agreed. Uh, uh, agreed. It's that preseason thing, yeah. right? Having the hard preseason prior to the season actually prepares yeah, you Yeah, even
0: if you lose, right? Even if it's there, you, you've, yeah. you've struggled it's, through that various different things. The other piece, going back to basketball. <laughs> of course, like it's always basketball. about basketball. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is the Shane Battier kind of piece that we talked about, right? This idea that having Shane on your team improved your team even though his yeah. stats were mediocre, right? I mean, they were they were
1: decent. It, among the measures that we tend to associate with
0: high-performing basketball exactly. players. Exactly, but the level of team play was raised. And what struck me, again, with the work that I tend to do with organizations, a lot on recognition and rewards, the same stuff that you used to do a lot of, right? We don't have rewards and recognitions for the Shane Battiers of the, of the world. That's right. We have the top performers. We have the rising stars, those people, the rookies, the great rookies. But we don't have the glue person award. We don't have the Shane Battier <laughs> award um, <laughs> right. for the person right. who makes us all better. And I think that's something that we really should be focused in on, particularly in this ever more team oriented world in which we work. I agree and uh, I
1: think part of part of the reason that maybe we don't have those rewards and that we're not focused on it is because it's hard to figure it out. It is. It's not easy in a corporate environment where there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of of team in, in especially in a matrixed a uh, big organization. There's a lot of different jobs that people do in a lot of different teams and uh, finding out if there's some kind of special sauce that someone has it takes some work from leadership and then it takes even more work to figure out how to stratify that and codify it in a way that you can pass it on to other other managers to say, look, this is the person that you want on the team to make sure that there's right. glue that makes sure that there's stickiness around it.
0: It is hard and and to your point, the measuring of that how does one measure? one's contribution to the overall team success because it may be in just the way that person shows up every day it may be in that they are inquisitive in questions that you know don't necessarily lead to any specific outcome but you know change the thinking again going back to this that's the what was the the question, The uh, how, did, how does that work? The competency versus novel. You might be asking really stupid questions, right? But because right. you're asking those stupid right. questions, it brings in this different perspective. And that could be the reason why the team does so good. And so, yeah, I think it's really hard, but I do think it's really important. And even if it's just a mindset shift from leadership to say, we know our top performers are important. We know those people who are improving mm-hmm. are important, but we also need to understand that there are certain people within our organization that are probably somewhere in the middle of the pack that yep. without them, the entire pack falls down. And I think that's key.
1: This is the Mike Ahern and Tom Steinberg uh, core performers. Yeah. They're the ones that they have different needs than the stars at the top or the laggards at the bottom, that those core performers in the middle, they have different needs. And when they are supported properly, when they're given the right
0: opportunities, they can shine. And it's identifying even within those core who are the glue, right? It's not just the the medium, not 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 everybody, but it is that. It is the Shane, I, I want to introduce the Shane Battier Award at some company. So any any of the people that I work with, if you're listening to this and you're interested, let's talk because I will, we'll figure out a way to measure and to get this done. But that would be a freaking cool, just it to would. change. I, I think it would be a cultural shift. And I think that if we can move that way, ah, that would be awesome. So major cultural yeah. shifts.
1: Yeah uh lastly i if you've got just another minute here, Kurt, because I wanted to talk about creative plagiarism because it was a cool part that connected to music
0: I, yeah. right well the the you the whole Bob Dylan story I could i so people we don't you know show the video of this, but Tim's face was just like, Ah it' was <laughs> like an angel had descended down, and he was like, Tell me more." <laughs>
1: Well, and this, it's kind of inevitable, right? I mean, if we think about the number of notes that are out there and the number of musical pieces that have been written, odds are that any new composition is going to be doing something musically that has already been Mm -hmm. done before, right? So just just the the raw data aspect of it being out there is, I think we have to sort of accept there's going to be some level of "Quote unquote plagiarism," yeah. but more importantly, when we start to absorb tons and tons of, of music, then it just be you know a, of content. Then it's like, well, I don't even remember the yeah. source.
0: Well, and I I love again that idea, the whole Francis Ford Coppola story that I went way too long on, oh, to right? Of you course, know, but I love that. Course, but yeah. but there's also this other piece that I think is really interesting because I see this. It's not just music. This is like in storytelling and different things. You have the hero, you, you know, the hero's journey, yes. right? Which over, over, and and over, over and over and over again. again. And, yeah. and I see it in fantasy where people go, oh, that's just a knockoff of Lord of the Rings uh, when you're, you know, in a book. And I'm going, yeah, it's not. And they, they're like, they downplay it because of that. And you're going, but it's a great story. And the story, yeah, it might have some similarities, but the story itself is different, and the way that it's told is different. The tone, the the landscape, all of those things, and yeah, the underlying pieces might have some similarity. That's okay, and and to dismiss it because of that, um, I think is is not the thing that we should be doing. We should be looking at things to see, does this bring me joy? Am I enjoying it? And, and to, again, music's the same way, right? And, and granted, yeah, we don't want to just rip off somebody else's thing and just change some words no. and put it off as our own. But to that point, there's that creative plagiarism that happens. And I think that's really, as you said, it gets soaked into our kind of cultural ethos. And we've read so yeah. many of this, we've heard so much of this, that it just is part of of kind of the background and it gets played into the stories that we tell.
1: It can be a good
0: thing. That's a short story. Yeah. Yeah. Not always a bad thing. Well, and let's end on that good thing. How about that? You want to end on that good thing? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's
1: do. So Groovers, we would just want to encourage you to be a part of the conversation about this episode and other ideas that you might have around behavioral science, you know, follow us on Twitter, Maybe you could be the type of person that actually leaves a comment Ooh. in
0: one of our podcast You could get apps. unstuck from not leaving us a, a comment to to, ah, to leave us a yes. comment. Maybe you're stuck in like, oh, I'm not that type of person. But you could be unstuck by just, you know, doing it. You might be a person that that sends us an email,
1: you know, that says, hey, what do you think about this? You know, any way that you can get unstuck from doing what you're doing. That helps us.
0: (laughs) 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 us. You sound very, very uh, self-absorbed there. It's like, if it helps us, just get unstuck. If it helps us, that's great.
1: That just engages in our conversation because we all grow by more conversations. So we just want to encourage that.
0: And it's free. It's a free way to support this podcast. If you want us to stay unstuck and not get stuck in trying to figure out how we're going to get more people in different pieces, you can do that. So. All right. That was a bad analogy. So with that, we hope that you groovers can get yourself unstuck this week and go about and find your groove.